Welcome to Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. Today we have a house episode for you. Jean-Louis and I are going to be talking about something called divergent systems, and it comes from an interesting place. So we've been recording this podcast for a few months now, and after every episode, we'll you know have a conversation after the fact with the with the person that's on the show, or we'll be talking to each other, and we kind of have this conversation after the conversation where we ask ourselves. Why are we witnessing the things that we're talking about on this show? Why are these certain behaviors happening? Why are these certain opportunities opening up and other ones closing? You know, why is landscape shifting in this way? And it it always invariably comes back to the same answer. If you really, really look at it, everything comes back to capitalism. And capitalism is really just a set of systems. The systems are theoretically simple. There are goals and there are incentives. If the goal of a free market is to make money, then the incentives are to make better products, offer better prices, create better brands people love, so on and so forth, so that you are able to reach that goal of making more money. And in this simple definition of capitalism, where goals are aligned with incentives, it makes sense, except in some categories, it's starting to go a little haywire. And those are the categories that we want to start talking about today. And in a series of conversations after this one, over the next few episodes, where we're going to talk about how we're seeing it happen in certain verticals, because in some places, goals might look like they're aligned with incentives, but actually they're not. And that is when you get divergent systems, systems that start on a clear path, but then they start to split. And the bigger question really here is when systems diverge, what happens to brands? And before we can get into that, we need to talk about what divergent systems actually are on a more granular level. So Jean-Louis, this is your wheelhouse. Describe divergent systems for us. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think you, you can think about this is we've been running this kind of our economy, capitalism on an operating system, which is well over 100 years old by now, you know, we haven't really changed it at all. And so the way I kind of think about it is you're flying a plane at a slight angle. And, you know, over time, that plane is going to turn and given enough time, and you might actually end up going back the way you were coming from. So I, I think that's kind of where we are with a lot of these systems is we haven't changed the rules at play. And so the plane is just gradually turning. And so given enough time, a system that was designed for one goal might end up doing something completely different because it's not moving according to what the goal of the system is. It's moving according to what the incentive is. So, you know, a really, really simple example of this is infrastructure. So when you think about infrastructure, the goal is obviously to, you know, support a city, support an environment, you know, with it, with the tools that it needs. But the incentive is usually political capital, you know, so a lot of cities are in desperate need of more bus networks, but that doesn't really, you know, win an election. So you end up with a lot of rail stations that aren't actually used that much. And so, you know, you're getting the goals really diverge from from the actual actions that are happening in the system. You know, without getting political, if you look at political parties, the goal is to represent the interests of the public, but the, the incentive is influence and usually influence comes through capital. And so it's not really surprising that you end up with a really strong duopoly and you end up with massive polarization because it's really effective at garnering capital and influence. 
news, for example, you know, for a long, long time, it's been running on the ad model. And, you know, with the ad model, while the goal of news might be to represent or communicate the events of the world, the incentive is attention. And so it shouldn't be surprising if you follow that track, if you just think about where that's going to go. Fake news should be sort of expected when you've got a model that tracks towards attention. You know, algorithms that condition us to be kind of more outraged, more kind of sensationalized by these different things, like those things should be expected. And so now, you know, in response to that, you've got a lot of news sites that are becoming subscription platforms and you've got others that are becoming really pay for play. They're changing the business model in response to that. So you can see all of these systems as just almost forget what the goal is and just think about what is the incentive that is keeping this system alive and just imagine where that is going. And often it's a really good prediction of what we're going to end up with. And the problem is, is that we're not able to fix the plane while it's flying right now. And so it keeps turning and we keep getting these systems that are kind of falling apart. And right now, at least with the infrastructure within capitalism, it's not really changing much. And so it's creating a lot of new demands. So where else are we seeing divergent systems at play? And, and I think more importantly, why now? Because, you know, everything you describe is like clear as day and it's all happening at once. <laughs> so why is it happening now? And is it even bigger than this? Right, right. So I think there's two things that you know, why now is, you know, if you imagine kind of your destination is straight ahead and you're, you're just a fraction of a degree off, it takes a lot of time before that, that difference in direction becomes really visible. And so I think with a lot of these things, it has just taken a really long time. I think a perfect encapsulation of this is the healthcare industry. I mean, you know, it goes without saying that it's clearly diverged, but I think when you think about it from the point of view of like, what is the incentive here? And it is profit, profit for the hospitals, but also profit for the insurance companies. And you've got a flood of private equity coming into hospitals to really dial dial this up. And so, you know, like it should be somewhat expected that in a system that doesn't have the checks and balances it needs, and your insurance tells you, you know, your deductible is higher this year, you know, your, your discount is higher, but then they're raising the prices, right? You've got a system where there are no visible costs. It's really not a free market anymore because you know no one's no one's able to know the prices of things before they buy and i think that's one of the key problems here is that when we talk about capitalism it's really i think important to remember that a free market in and of itself does not want to main does not want to stay free you know what will happen over time is that through regulations or through monopolies People will try and close the door behind them. Businesses will try and close the door behind them. And in healthcare, you've seen that. They've created so many regulations that really make it incredibly difficult to compete and incredibly difficult to operate as a free market where consumers have any level of choice. You know, they're not even the, the buyer, really, the insurance company is. And so there's so many levels of abstraction. But then if you look at tech, for example, they've done it in a different way. You've got these monopolies that literally block out the sun for competitors. And, you know, anyone who gets close, they just get aqua hired or just, you know, bought out. And so you've got so many ways in which the free market doesn't want to stay free inherently. If you think about it as a system, it's inherently unstable. And so you need those checks and balances. And I think in large part, we've kind of seen a failure to maintain the freedom of the market in so many different places. You know, even if the market isn't entirely free in a world like this, where profit has to be the goal in order to survive, because the story is ultimately written by the victors. I mean, isn't everything really divergent in some way or another? 
I mean, yes and no. I think a lot of systems do have divergent properties, but you know, when a system diverges is when it's really had enough time for that. I think what's really interesting here is that we're seeing the very, very, very beginning stages of new kind of infrastructure here, you know? So at the extreme end, you've got cryptocurrency and really, you know, it's less about the cryptocurrency itself, but more about organizational structures it enables. So people are starting to talk about DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, where you've got essentially the rules of the organization are written in code and anyone can kind of come and go freely and participate in this economy. And so, you know, there's, we're starting to see the very beginnings of this. Really, we're at the infrastructure layer. If this was the internet, we'd be in the early 1980s right now. You know, so there's a company foundation and they're a great example of this, where they've created a market where artists or, you know, any kind of creator can create goods that are linked to tokens and people can buy and sell those tokens. And so they become an asset. And so you can invest in an artist that you believe in. And, you know, what they're doing there is they're creating a market, they're creating an economy that gives ownership to the customers and gives gives new kind of vehicles of capital and new vehicles of ownership for the creators themselves. And so we're starting to see different ways of organizing people. You know, we're seeing a rise in cooperatives in terms of businesses. We're seeing a rise in equity crowdfunding, for example, is another great way of people starting to think about, okay, how are we organizing around these things? How are we creating the incentives and how are they aligned? And so we're starting to explore with these things. I think we're at the very, very beginning of maybe a Cambrium explosion of new formats for this. But again, I think we're maybe, you know, maybe in five years, people will be talking about that. But right now, we're just at the infrastructure layer. So I think it's coming in terms of finding new ways. And I think what's really important here is how do you fix the plane in flight? You know, how do we create a model that isn't just, you know, set and forget where we can actually tweak the rules of engagement as it goes. And I think things around decentralization and crypto actually offer new vehicles to do that. So I'm going to do something that you do a lot of times. Let's test this idea by pushing it to the extreme. If we push this mm -hmm. out to like a hundred, here's what bugs me about this idea a little bit. And when you look at co-ops, decentralized systems where people can come and go and participate as they want, I think these things, you can understand how they work on a small scale, but the thing about a capitalist society, let's just say American society, is that people are driven by the fact that you know, this idea of rags to riches, the fact that you can do much better than your neighbor tomorrow. And that's why I feel people are so willing to put up with so much crap in the, today because they feel like there's always the possibility that they can outperform other people. But these decentralized systems, crypto, the co-op idea, I think it kind of caps any one person having like some sort of major breakaway success or taking more than their fair share of the, of the, profit or, or whatever winnings whatever you want to call it i don't i hope i'm not getting too abstract here but like it kind of feels like it's going against human nature a little bit does that make sense yeah i mean what's funny is that you know when you think about capitalism there's there's capitalism as a system as the economics but then there's also capitalistic values and i think right. they're two very separate things that are almost always conflated for one another and so i think certainly in this country if you attack capitalism it sounds as an attack on the values and, you know, you kind of, you get lost in the weeds instantly. But I think there really are two different things, but you, you raise a really good point, you know, as we're stress testing this. One of the challenges right now is that 
if you take a cooperative, for example, like a lot of these business models can generate a ton of value for people, but you know, maybe they only reach, you know, 10 or a hundred million in terms of valuation for a company, but you're in an environment which you're fighting against VC funding a lot of the time. And so you've got companies that, you know, they strap a hundred million dollars to it and say, hit the moon or, or go bust. It doesn't matter, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of challenging because it's stifling a lot of opportunity for these new businesses, because really the economics of VC is, you know, either you're a billion dollar company or you don't exist. And so right. it is a challenge there, but I think one of the really fascinating things is the fundamental rules of capitalism might actually be changing kind of under our feet. And what I mean by that is that, you know, for most of history, in my view, at least, capitalism was really, it enabled in the way it existed, it enabled incremental advances. It really encouraged small improvements over competitors. You know, you make a slightly better product and you, you know, you win the market and someone else makes a slightly better product. And that's generally how it worked. You know, when it came to massive advances in technology, that was usually left to governments because it just, there weren't the, yeah. it wasn't easy to get the capital to have something that takes, you know, a 10 years or, you know, maybe an unknown period of time of R&D to come across that breakthrough. But now with these trillion dollar companies that are emerging, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, what's starting to happen is they have the means to make step change advancements. You know, it's no longer incrementalism for those few companies that are able to do that. They can invest in very, very, very long players that may take an indefinite period of time. But when they come, they completely change the market. And we haven't seen that yet, but you have to remember all of this kind of step change advancements used to come from the public sector, you know, with NASA developing all sorts of technology. But now, you know, with Google working on longevity science, you know, with self-driving cars, with huge AI advancements, you know, like even like Neuralink, for example, with Elon Musk connecting, you know, creating a brain machine interface, you know, these changes, if taken commercial, would be potentially trillion dollar companies in their own right for each of them. But they're completely owned buy these trillion dollar companies. And so I think we're reaching a point where the rules of capitalism are changing. And I think that might impact our values. The story that you can go from rags to riches might not make sense in a world where, you know, the trillion dollar companies are literally sucking up all of the oxygen in the yeah. room. Yeah. These trillion dollar companies that have the potential to create these step change advancements instead of incremental change. Would you say they've also kind of, you know, obviously they've created like the the capital opportunity to do that. But have they also created the cultural opportunity to do that as they've started to take on a more prominent role in our lives, as they've become the new governments, which we've talked about so many times? Have they created a, a, an environment where we're willing to let them create such huge changes where we might not have allowed them a few decades ago? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. One of the things I've been thinking about, and I don't know how true it is, but it definitely seems to resonate with me, is that we've really changed recently in the way that a lot of these businesses work, where you've gone from the customer to the product. You know, this was that line out of the um, the social dilemma that everyone's talking about. But I think it's it's really quite profound, you know, in the sense that when you are the product, you're not really a stakeholder in the conversation anymore. And I think that's starting to happen in a lot of different places, you know, especially when you think about AI, you know, you're the data point, you know, you're the data set. And so you don't, your, your opinions 
are far less valid, you know, and with these companies, they have so much capital to influence public opinion. They're completely bulletproof from a kind of scandal point of view. They have massive operations. And, you know, I mean, we should probably do our own episode about how they're the trust machines, you know, that are designed <laughs> to yeah, perpetuate exactly. trust. Like you cannot not trust them. And that's literally the one thing that they need to create. And they're, they're exceptional at that. And that's what makes them so successful. So I think, you know, in that regard, They've escaped that orbit, and I don't know if we have the power we think we do over them anymore. Hold on, though. You watched The Social Dilemma? Yeah. I, I did not see that. And I was very surprised at how much social chatter there was about it, because, well, you tell me, there's nothing in there that we don't already know about the ills of technology, right? No, but I, I think there's one point that certainly stuck out to me, and that's, you, you know, when you think about Facebook and these social networks, it's not that you are the product, but that the product is incremental behavior change. It's getting you to behave ever so slightly differently. And, you know, when you think about that, like that's, that's a big deal, you know, and it's kind of begs a really interesting question, which is that if you're able to change society at large in terms of their views and their opinions and these kind of things, like, you know, maybe society is now a slightly divergent system because you've got a, <laughs> a, a, a new incentive at play. You know, who knows? Yeah, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I feel like we kind of already knew that. I knew that. I think most people knew that. I, I'm guessing the film maybe presented it in a way that was a bit more shocking, but mm -hmm. I feel like. We knew that and we agreed to it when we all started kind of giving up our privacy. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first, when we've talked about this before, I think that was the first signal that tech was slowly changing our actual behaviors and the way that we related to each other Yeah, and the, the things that we were willing to accept. So, okay, going back to the discussion, it's easy for, to like step away from this discussion and hear what you're saying and say like, isn't this just disruption? So I'm going to ask you, isn't this just disruption? Yes and no. I mean, I think really the story of this isn't so much like this is creating the environment for disruption. This has created the social norm. I think that we now look to disruption as a point of trust. The point is that the systems have been broken enough that our trust in them have been broken. These aren't authorities that we look to anymore. And so we're now looking for new authorities and that's forcing us into the arms of disruption. You know, it's forcing us mm. to look to new players. And so mm. when someone is disruptive, it, it's they're sending a signal that we are not the broken system. You know, we're a new system. And I think we're really willing to embrace that because of this climate. So I think the disruption economy, if you could call it that, is because of divergent systems. You've brought up trust a couple of times now, which I think leads me to the next question, which is, what does this mean for brands? Like, let's let's bring it back down to earth. Yeah. How is this changing the rules of engagement for brands? What should brands be doing in response? Obviously, where does trust fit into this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I sort of see this is that people are looking for power. They're looking for control. A lot of the divergent systems, what's happened is that they've gotten less control. You know, mm -hmm. in, in the medical industry, there's no control. You literally can't, yes. you cannot actually get a price before they do that. I mean, you know, there was an example, it was an A16 podcast, you know, could you imagine booking a plane and they, they tell you, you know, we can only give you the price when you land. Like there's just, there's just no way, you know, it just, I mean, you, that's, that's like a very soft example. I mean, there's also just the power of like being a woman or a person of color, you know, like trying to um, be heard in a medical system. It's been documented so well that depending on your race or your class or definitely your gender, doctors won't 
take your descriptions of pain as seriously as they would somebody mm -hmm. else, for example, yeah. or they will, you know, be more likely to characterize your, your reactions or, or feelings as hysterical over other things. It's not just disempowerment and loss of control over, you know, technical things like being able to see price transparency. It's over like things that are also kind of dehumanizing. Yeah, no, I mean, it kind of sounds like, you know, maybe it may be a small factor, but the, the numbers are insane. Like if you look at the numbers, like these are very, very big deals. And I think just generally across the board, you know, with these divergent systems, like you, the consumer, you, the individual generally lose power in all of these conversations. You know, when it comes to political parties, like you've lost power because, you know, it's a, it's about the capital and the influence you, you, and for most of these systems, you become the product. And so in terms of what brands can do, it's giving people a sense of power back and, 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 you know, designing an incentive that really aligns with that, creating the ability for some kind of value generation for your customers to be part of your incentive as a business, you know, and sort of different ways that you can do that. You know, the, the most tangible one is building your business around a cause. So, I mean, you've got like sustainability brands as, as, as a baseline or even a company like Patagonia, right? They are successful on the back of building a community around like environmental ad advocacy. And so, you know, if they're successful or rather, you know, the success of their environmental advocacy has a large impact on the success of their brand. And so even though it was a private company, their incentive might be profit. That's largely driven by their ability to, to provide a, a meaningful impact and create value. And so I think as, as a brand, when you're thinking about, you know, operating in this environment, you have to think about how do I bring the incentives of my business, which are almost always going to be profit ultimately, how do I align those as best I can with value creation for my customers, you know, at a very fundamental level, what can we do? And so, you know, another example is creating, you know, creating your brand around a, a perspective or sharing a voice or giving, you know, creating a community. These kind of vehicles are creating value for your customers, but also if done right, can generate a lot of profit for you as a business. And so it's really about thinking about where are we creating value and how can we align our incentives around that? I think fundamentally at a systems level approach, that's the best thing you can do. Because really, again, you know, we're looking for disruption because we're looking for power. We're looking for control again. We want to feel like a stakeholder in all of this. And when you when you create value like that, you're, you're doing that for the customers. Yeah. And when you say trust, that's super interesting because, you know, you can talk about like having a cause. You can talk about creating communities where people feel like they belong. You can talk about corporate social responsibility or providing value through like really, you know, wondrous experiences. You can talk about so many different things and lenses that brand touches. But if you go and re-examine them again and say, is this creating a source of trust for people? Not do they trust our brand, but do they feel like they're in a system that is trustworthy, that mm -hmm. gives them that control back? I feel like that changes the answers a lot. And a lot of brands would be very hard pressed to actually answer those questions in a way that makes sense in a non-divergent system. I mean, let's be honest here. This sounds hard and probably not easy to scale, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, ultimately it's hard and it takes a lot of you know, serious decisions to get there. But I, I think you sort of touched on it in the sense that, you know, real authenticity nowadays, like it, we, I think people are so fatigued by lip service mm -hmm. that you have to have 
authenticity at a systems level, essentially. And that's really almost what I'm talking about here in terms of value creation is that you need to design your business in a way that it authentically creates value for people that like that is part of the incentive. It's the model. It's the expectation that's been set. And so I think that's kind of what we're demanding of these businesses. You can't, you can't say these things without backing them up with actions now. You know, it's becoming, it, we're becoming far more sensitive to these things and far more aware of the actions businesses take. When leadership fails, even if it's just a bit company culture, you know, that's a big deal now in a way it wasn't before, you know, so the, the climate has changed. Our tolerance for these things has really changed around it. So we're kind of talking about this already, but I want to go deeper. So how is this changing consumers and culture? Or I don't know if it is a chicken or the egg, like did consumers and culture change and now it's changing business? I don't even know if we need to ask that question, but how are these parts of the equation being changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely kind of every, everyone's been changed at the same time. I mean, this is kind of such a slow moving vehicle in terms of divergence. Again, you know, a lot of these things have been in the works for a hundred years or so, you know, so it takes a lot of time, but I think there's a few trends that we know are happening. We know that people are trying to circumvent the broken system. You know, again, kind of going back to the medical industry, it's so clear here that we are looking for new ways and new places that we can fulfill those needs. And so it shouldn't be any surprise in a world where you can't guarantee your well-being through the healthcare industry anymore. You just, the trust isn't there. And so obviously you rely on it when you need to, but that's probably one of the contributing factors to why wellness has become so strong. We've become massively disenfranchised with healthcare. And so we're looking to new places, to new ways of fulfilling those needs. And so, you know, we, we buy wellness products, we follow wellness influencers in a way of it's the, I think you have to see this from a mental category point of view. You know, we are seeing this in the same bucket of this is my health. And so I'm taking care of my health in new ways now. And the divergent system has kind of forced us into these new behaviors. But I think the subtext here, which is which is interesting and, and maybe concerning, is the fact that this usually trickles down from the top. You have very premium offerings come in and, and you know they they grab the capital and they take that opportunity and it's mostly with more affluent customers. And so Yeah, I know, in, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, mm -hmm. I think of parsley health when you talk about right. this. And for the record, I love parsley health. I'm a parsley health member. I'm not even going to say patient. I'm a member because it feels like a club and you get great health care, but man, does it cost money and they don't accept insurance. <laughs> and, you know, you get great health care, but at the same time, you kind of, they, they put a lot of emphasis on design and creating like very comfortable spaces. And a lot of, I think empathetic healthcare is about solving a design problem too. Mm -hmm. not, design from like the spaces to the the actual patient flow to how you interact with your doctor, all things which they've innovated on. Well, it's trust design. I mean, it, yes. it goes back to it. Yes. They really, you know, the, the pastels really are code for trust, yeah. code for we're not the old way That's of doing it. That's a really it. good point because it's easy to look at that and be kind of skeptical and be like, all right, are these like beautiful colors and like rattan furniture in the in these third spaces that they've created in the kombucha on tap or whatever it is? Is that really going to like solve the mm -hmm. world's like mm -hmm. medical crisis? But you're right. It does solve a mental barrier that we have right now around just the ex like how the experience starts when you walk yeah. into those places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's happening all and all over the place. You know, again, going back to news, 
with these membership platforms, you know, that get progressively more expensive. I mean, even if you look at Substack and these kind of more boutique niche things, you know, you can pay a lot of money to get incredibly high quality news and analysis of the world. And so you can see the world in a different lens if you have the capital. And, you know, what's happening here is social stratification mm -hmm. is you're getting society is broken up into different tiers. And eventually these things might trickle down and you'll get, a, you know, consumer access for the mass market. But I think a great barometer of is something divergent happening here is, is society getting stratified? Are different levels, different tiers of society able to have very different experiences and their needs fulfilled in different ways? And so, I, you know, like, Without diverging too much, I think the conversation about capitalism versus socialism is really where do we find it acceptable to have social stratification? You know, is it okay to stratify people's healthcare or people's education or people's infrastructure? You know, that's I think, you know, in my eyes at least, a big part of the conversation that people don't realize they're having is, mm. you know, where is it okay to have different levels of service for different people? Where is it a right to have everyone have a baseline? And I think that's really what we're talking about because socialism really is just capitalism with a slightly larger welfare system. Oh, be careful what you say here. <laughs> it's election season. <laughs> I would not throw those words around lightly. But I mean, I get what you're saying. Taking the socialist piece out, you know, how we choose where we're willing to accept this kind of stratification is a very, very direct signal of what a society values mm -hmm. in different ways. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, yeah. I mean, it goes back to this point about it's not really about capitalism. It's about capitalistic values here, you know, in terms of where we choose to draw the line. And you can see that because, you know, other countries are also capitalistic uh, in terms of their model, but their values are slightly different. And so they draw the lines in different places. And I think, you know, it, again, it's so it's so powerful when you delineate values from the actual economics because they're two very separate things and you know what do we what do we accept like that's really the question there can you give us some examples of how it's different in this country versus other countries that that will really i think illustrate what we mean by this mm -hmm. well you know i mean education is a great place to look right so there's a big conversation right now about making university free because you know university or college is no longer um uh, I mean, really, it's a baseline now for the mm -hmm, workforce, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's been a long, 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 long time since high school was the benchmark. And so, you know, really, by making that free, you're expressing your values and saying this is the benchmark for society. And this is where equal opportunity should start as a baseline, you know, and obviously, if you've got more money, you go to private schools, whatever. And so, you know, I think in Germany, um, university is free, or at least at certain levels. And a lot of countries is, are looking at that and starting to say that, okay, you know, higher education is free up to this level. And that level is gradually rising in a lot of places. But I think it's a, it's a very transparent way of seeing w the values at play there. So where do you predict the next set of di divergent systems is going to emerge? We've mentioned the obvious ones, education, politics, healthcare. Where, where is the next set going to come from? Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think we're going to see a subset at play in terms of mental health. I think that's a whole space that there really isn't even much of an industry around it right now. But it's, it's such a big thing, and especially with COVID. I think we're going to see a lot of social stratification around that, that if you have money or that with this K-shaped recovery that we're talking about, you know, you're going to have a very different experience. But if you have money, you can really take care of your mental health in different ways. I mean, isn't that already true, though? Or are you saying it's there's going to be even more ways to circumvent? 
are far more ways to circumvent. But I think especially when it comes to childhood and, you know, the children's experiences of COVID, you know, in terms of like, it's a huge, huge impact to have a lack of social interaction for such a long period of time. Yeah. And the, the ramifications of that, you know, you're going to have two very different classes oh, of people Oh, you're already come out seeing it. Kids, are, kids that have a pod and kids that are doing remote mm-hmm. learning yeah. or, you know, risking their health going to school mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody's personal decisions, whether they send their kids to school or not. But the fact that some kids have a choice and other kids don't. Yeah. I think, I mean, in my eyes, what's what's the most interesting is we're seeing very, very, very quiet signals right now of an infrastructure change. As I was saying before about, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations and these kind of things, we're starting to see a new layer of infrastructure that creates new types of incentives, new new ways of organizing people around these incentives and, you know, potentially the chance to, you know, fix the vehicle while it's moving, mm. you know, ways of updating these incentives and these models in play. And I, those things are incredibly exciting. And there's now such a demand for it because these systems aren't really working for us. You know, again, it goes back to that question of, are they are these systems going to be stifled by, you know, hyper-aggressive models like the, like the VC model right now? We don't know. But I think what's really exciting to me is these infrastructure changes. And, you know, if you're a brand in the next three to five years, this is this conversation is very quiet now, but you're going to see it get louder and louder and louder, just like the internet. You know, it, it kind of suddenly it was all there if you weren't paying attention. And mm-hmm. so I think that you have to start thinking about this at a systems level. You know, you have to think about your business as, you know, where am I creating value and where are my incentives? Because if you're not careful, you know, you're going to wake up one day and there's going to be a new model that is completely outpacing the way you can operate. And again, you know, these things are getting more direct. So, you know, with creators now, with these direct relationships with Patreon and your know, Substack, and you no longer have to go through mediators. You know, if you look at the media industry, right now it's mostly rent seekers. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at Spotify and YouTube and all these kind of aggregation platforms, they're then all they're doing is kind of surfacing it. You know, they're rent seekers in the sense that they're not really creating true value themselves. They're extracting yeah. value from yeah. everyone else. And so all of these models are emerging, which where it's a direct relationship, it's direct engagement. You know, that's creating a new norm for people. That's creating a new behavior yeah. and a new expectation of saying, you know, I don't need to go through these centralized But also platforms. it creates that sense of trust and control that we know people are seeking too. Exactly. I mean, again, it, it all points to the same thing. There is a new set of behaviors and values coming out of this as a response to the divergent systems. And if you can speak to those, if you can fulfill those and you can behave in those kind of ways and create direct relationships and access, mm. you know, without mediation, I think there's huge opportunities to be had. I mean, really quite, quite profound ones because we're talking about systems here. You know, it's not even industries or categories or anything like that. This is the fundamental gears of how we service our needs as consumers. So if you're a founder or a brand owner, other than the obvious question of like, are my goals aligned with my incentives? What can you ask yourself to really understand where the divergence is within the systems that you operate? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the first thing you have to do is understand like, like where are your consumers at? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, the, in the context of what you're offering them and in the context really of the needs that they're getting fulfilled. Because again, if you look at wellness, you know, the needs of taking care of my health, that was what was at play in terms of pushing people out of the healthcare industry and into the wellness industry. And I think this may, brings me to another point. A lot of times 
people don't even know how their consumers define the product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does health mean? Well, health stopped for a, a huge faction of people. It stopped meaning not being sick and started meaning living to your most you know, extreme physical potential. I mean, just the fact that their, their definitions changed meant that the system was starting to diverge because now the goals and incentives are not the same for you as they are for your users, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, for sure. I, I think we're seeing a lot of those changes there, but the way you have to look at it is just at the very, very basic needs viewpoint, because that really is universal to these things. And so it, it sets the context of engagement. And so understanding where are people moving? Because there's a lot of foot traffic right now. People are really, they're moving away from industries and moving to new ones. You know, we have this appetite for disruption because we're looking for authentic, trusted relationships. You know, we're looking for the, these new standards of engagement now. And so you have to look at the needs to understand where the foot traffic is going. Where are people, where are people yeah. moving? Like, how am I, how is this consumer base changing? Because again, you know, I mean, right now it's mostly early adopters and it's mostly this top tier of consumers, you know, premium luxury consumers um, that are very affluent, you know? And so like, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, maybe it's not a huge market right now, but you know, you'd be missing the signal. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. I don't want to simplify anything that we've described here because I think it's pretty profound what, what you've like kind of summed up for us, but you could kind of boil it down to something that you and I have always talked about with our clients, which is you know, you might have a vision and you might want to know what you're, what you want to create in the world, whether you're like a startup or the CEO of like a public company, you know, we, we work with both, but it kind of doesn't matter. What matters is what your consumer wants, where they believe they're headed and what they're willing to let you do in order to make that happen with them mm -hmm. to the point that like, when we do all that research, when we really start to understand those triggers, when we really start to create a very rich picture of the value systems that these people have for themselves and how they operate in the world and the roles that they play, it's kind of irrelevant what, what a founder actually wants. The best founders, which fortunately we always get to work with, are the ones whose, whose desires have actually deep down tapped into an emerging wave of change in the culture, but they didn't realize it. You know, they didn't necessarily articulate it, but they they tapped into the much deeper needs of their audience. Mm -hmm. So, again, not to simplify what we've described here, but a really easy guardrail is to just make sure, like, am I really, really paying attention to what people want? Because yeah. a lot of times what brings people to your brand is not what keeps them there. They might come because they need to buy something, but they stay because you're providing them with something different than just the product. I think the smartest brands understand that. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all just systems of value. Right. And, and most of the time, you know, a lot of the time you just get lucky. You just happen upon, you know, without even knowing, a lot of the time people don't even realize the, the actual value they're providing for people. But ultimately, you know, you can kind of strip away everything else and the success of a, a business can be predicted by the, its ability to, to fulfill value for people. Right. Well, I think that was a great discussion on Divergent mm -hmm. Systems. So after this, we'll probably do another house episode at some point just to wrap this all up. But we'll be talking to other people in different verticals about how Divergent Systems are creating new brand opportunities in their categories. So we can really get a rich understanding of what this divergence actually means. And like anything else, 
I personally find that I learn a lot more when I understand it in somebody else's industry than when I understand it in my own. Because <laughs> it forces you to really kind of let go of your biases and see an idea mapped in, onto a different space. And once you understand like the, the actual truths, then you can start applying it to your own. So we're hoping that as we talk to different people, we bring the same value to, to the people who are listening. So, Sean, let me thank you so much. Another great house episode. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk to all of you guys soon.